Well, please uh, keep that open uh, in front of you um, as we think through this evening. So as we begin, um, I'm wondering, can you tell me, uh, some pictures are going to come up on the screen. I wonder if you just have a think for a second, what do these pictures have in common? What links them all together? not give us too long and put us out of our misery. Um, these are some of the most popular New Year's resolutions. Now, I know you'll be thinking to yourself, hang on, they've just been talking about Easter, we're, we're into April, and he's talking about New Year's resolutions. But um, hopefully we'll see why in a second. Uh, so number one, most years is around saving money. Number two, getting fit or losing weight. The top 10 list goes on, we'll say, Read more, find a better love life, travel more, quit smoking. The list goes on. And I wonder if you've ever set your mind to something. Maybe it was a New Year's resolution. A new goal, a fresh start, or turning over a new leaf. Lots of us do that, don't we, in the normal cycle of life. Whether it's a, a new school year, if that's the pattern of your year. Or, or most famously, of course, in January. We get to that night, don't we, and we think about the bad habits we want to put to one side and the good things we want to bring into the new year with us. It's like a fresh, clean notebook before the first spelling mistake or smudge or rushed note or torn page. We begin the year with such good intentions and we want to put our heart and soul into a new beginning, but it doesn't last long. As I said, in the, top, in the top 10, it's getting fit most years. But in 2018, Strava did some research about January. Uh, Strava analyzed all 31.5 million of its users and looked at their fitness regimes and found that most people had fallen away from what they'd committed to by the second Friday in January. <laughs> Another even bigger study, a bit older, um, this study, but it found that less than 55% of us stick to our resolution even for the whole month of January. I don't know if, you, if you're sitting exams at the minute or if you can cast your mind back to exams. But when it came to revision, I was a full-on procrastinator. I looked exceptionally organised and it fooled my parents. But um, I, I had stuff spread out on the dining room table. I had a really precise revision timetable, um, which really was irrelevant stick to it. Um, and it counted down to the exam, but I never did any of it. It seems like putting our heart into something can be, can be tough. I googled this just this week and Google tells me that the rate of divorce in the UK is at 42%, so just shy of half of our marriages. In our heart into something can be tough. Well, we're in a series called Impossible Commands, and tonight we're thinking about this, this command to serve wholeheartedly. And it seems impossible. Even putting our um, heart into fitness for the month of January is, is pretty tough. So before we jump into Ephesians 6, let me pray for us. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us tonight, that you would open our eyes um, to the truth of your word, that your spirit would challenge and change us as 
So in Ephesians 6, we've just had it read to us. One other translation puts this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and respect with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. And it goes on in verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. So let me just say something before we take off, whether it's bond servants or slaves. This passage is talking to slaves and masters. For us, we can look at our lives and we can think about the people that are in authority and those who are under authority, which is really all of us. But let's just come in for a second on slaves. Probably sits a little bit uneasy with us that, that Paul's um, teaching slaves in their circumstances. But in the context of what Paul's, uh, in, in the context of Paul's writing in the first century, um, historians tell us that slaves were more like a socioeconomic class than they were victims of racial injustice in the way that we think of slaves today. This position didn't automatically mean that these people were oppressed or mistreated. And it didn't mean that their dignity was stripped away. Many of these people would have been domestic servants, but many would have been working as teachers, nannies, cooks, gardeners, doctors, administrators, and so on. Many of them served and lived as actual members of people's households in the first century. To reassure us, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul does condemns them slave trading. In some ways, we need to read this as Paul speaking into the reality of life for these people. Much like us today, we have to navigate the Christian life in tricky situations in a sinful world, and so, so did the first century Christians. Paul's teaching them how to live Christianly in their life situation, just like we are called to do today. So let's, let's carry on. Let's have a look at why we're called to serve wholeheartedly with hearts that, uh, that can't manage three times a week on a treadmill. Paul makes something really clear in this passage. We are called to obedience. That's our service. Wholehearted obedience. Paul doesn't mean that there's some sort of super spiritual level that's to be reached here. He's not saying that wholehearted obedience or wholehearted service is spending every Friday at Fry Up, every Sunday at church twice, and maybe a small group of prayer triplet in the week. Those things are all good, of course. But Paul's showing us here that wholehearted service goes beyond those things. Paul shows us that obedience to God is living a life of service, a life of obedience, wherever we are, hour by hour, week by week, day by day. Paul calls us to wholehearted obedience in the context of our daily working lives. So I've got one point and one point only. We are called to obedience for Christ in all things. Paul writes, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. There's no equivalent. Paul says, listen, everyone. Do as you are supposed to do. We're called to obedience to those that we're under, under God. Those who are put in authority under him, but over us. Ultimately, 
slave under authority, some more than others. Whether it's the tax man, the director, or the supervisor, they're all under God. For our young people, that's their parents. And I'm sorry to say to any of our young people, it's your teachers, they Your leaders here, perhaps, have encountered or rooted. Or maybe even it's the exam boards, I've mentioned exams already. I'm sure we can think of more that we sit under. But whatever or whoever it may be, we're called to obedience. And obedience in our service is far from easy. That's why Paul talks to us about it. But listen to what Paul states as the motivation or aim of our obedience. Paul servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Carrying on verse 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You think about Paul's focus. Why are we obedient to the people who need us? Well, it's because of Jesus. Paul says, and calls us to focus on Jesus as we serve in our day-to-day lives. He calls us to serve Jesus by obeying others, and in doing that, we are obeying him. Paul wanted his listeners then and us today to know that when we are called to be obedient, we're called to wholehearted service. And when we do that, we're being obedient. So whilst we may be obedient to earthly authority, we are also obedient to him. But we all know, don't we, that when we look at the world around us, it can be hard to find leaders sometimes who we feel are deserving of our allegiance, our service, or obedience. It can be hard when we look around us to find the leaders who have integrity. This isn't an easy command. Some of us will hear the word authority and straight away we'll think about leaders who will try to oppress or exploit. Because not all rulers will, will lead us in selfless service to us. So as Paul draws our attention to Christ, let's think about our ultimate leader, the one who we are called to serve. Listen to these words from Philippians 2. Though he, that's Jesus, so though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As we serve Jesus in this way, we're serving a leader who is selfless and paying the ultimate price for us. The one who served us and died on the cross, as we'll remember next weekend. So back in Ephesians 6, Paul helps us to 
to understand how we do this Jesus focused obedience by pointing out four characteristics. And so, if we're going to live obediently to Christ in wholehearted service, we have to do that reverently, wholeheartedly, conscientiously, and happily. So, let's look at each of those. So, the first is reverence. Paul means, that's what Paul means when he says in verse 5 that we are to obey earthly masters with fear and trembling. I don't think here that Paul's kind of talking about the, the kind of scooby-doo, knee-knocking, uh, quaking fear that we might think of when we hear these words. Not the kind of filled with terror fear. Paul is talking about a reverence, a right respect for authority that under God is over us. It's a humble respect that understands that our position is not about a difference in value or a difference in dignity, but acknowledges that there is a difference in position as we go through this life. My daughter recently hurt her foot at a friend's birthday party. We were at a soft play. I tend to try and avoid soft play as much as I can, but I wasn't at this one. Um, and we were at a soft play nearby. She's four. She sometimes hurts herself when she's playing. I'm usually a quick cuddle, a quick tickle, a quick distraction, a silly voice usually sorts it out very quickly. In the worst case scenario, we'll uh, quickly pull out a bit of calcol and offer a fruit shoot and all is fine again. But this, this day, this party was different. She didn't calm down quickly. She was still sobbing 25 minutes later. I think I was almost sobbing at that point. She tried to walk, but when she would put her foot down, she would start crying again, and she refused eventually to any weight on her foot at all. As a very responsible parent, I tried a tactic of walking away later <laughs> uh, to see if she would actually walk on this and became dead when she became desperate enough to catch up. But she didn't. Um, she just would not walk on it. So long story short, uh, I went home and had lunch first and then took her to AG. And when we were at the RBI, eventually we were seen by a doctor. Um, who she wouldn't speak to. Uh, but the doctor took about 90 seconds to tell us that this was a soft tissue injury and nothing more. He said to me that we had to wait 48 hours and if it wasn't any better at that point to come back, but that he was pretty sure it would ease. I was skeptical. And I'm sure you could see the look of uh, disbelief in my face. I thought, hang on, I know my daughter. She's never this upset. I'm never this sore. They didn't say it, but I just thought it. Thanked him for his time and off we left. And I thought to myself, mm -hmm. I hope he's the one that's on duty when I bring her back in two days for an extra day. What happened? Well, pretty much 36 hours on the dot, Freya took her foot on the floor and walked quite happily uh, with a little limp. The doctor was right. I didn't have the humility in that situation to respect his position of authority over these things his position in those circumstances. Paul tells us to obey with reverence and respect and humility. So next then, wholeheartedly. In the Church Bible we read, live in obedience with a sincere heart and rendering service with good will. Paul means to serve, obey, and to live wholeheartedly in all that we do for Christ. Giving a hundred percent, no half-heartedness, 
new cut corners, new ulterior motives, full, genuine commitment to obedience. In 1905, a woman called Mrs. Helm was giving a speech at, at, uh, after a dinner at a prominent annual event in the US. She's quoted as saying, a wise person once said, there are always two reasons for doing something good. One good reason, and then the real reason. And I don't know if it's as simple as that. But she captures something of people's feeling, do they? That we do things to serve ourselves. So if we think about Simon for a moment, Simon's 27, he's a graphic designer. He's in a team of six, I think, really talented designers. He's particularly kind to their manager, often brings her coffee in the morning, checks in to see if there's anything he can do to help. His colleagues assume that he's trying to overtake them, get into her good books so that he um, will be the first for a pay rise. They're also spreading a little rumour about that he wants to date her. Simon does think about the future, but he knows he probably wants to move on from this company. He wants to find better opportunities somewhere where he enjoys the design work more and more. He's a Christian and even though he doesn't love the work, the designing that he's doing, and even though he thinks that actually his manager can be pretty difficult at times, um, he knows that, that she's got a tough job too. And he knows that they're paid to work within the company's rules and their processes. And so whilst he sees his frustrations are there because he wants to do things that he enjoys more, he wants to do things his own way, he acknowledges that he can't always do that because he's looking at me. He's learned at his church that he is to work at all things, like it says in Colossians, to work at all things as who he is working for God. And so he tries to put that into practice. I'm guessing Simon does stand out a bit amongst his colleagues, but, but hopefully not because he brings his manager a coffee. I think he probably stands out because he barely misses a deadline. If he's struggling with a deadline and he's honest and he's open about that early on. He stands out for his honesty, for his punctuality, for the way he approaches work, dresses for work, for how hard he works. Simon's realised that how he uses his time and work is part of his obedience, his service. He's worked out that how honest he is with clients, how it costs. Well, that's part of living obedience. Wholehearted obedience is just that, it's wholehearted. It's not half-hearted. A half-hearted sign would maybe allow his frustrations with work as his manager to impact the way that he approaches day-to-day -day tasks. He might be late occasionally or, or on time, but actually has stayed up way too late the night before and so isn't really in work completely. He might be sloppy with the quality of what he does, cut corners where he can. He might even end up being dishonest with clients about the cost of the hours that he has worked. Simon, just like you and me, has been called to wholehearted obedience. To work out all things as though we are working for Christ. So I wonder if you can think, what does wholehearted obedience look like in your home or in your school, if you're one of our young people? or at work, or wherever, you might be under authority if you're not so young tonight. 
right? in cutting corners or being dishonest somewhere along the way? Is there a way that you're half-hearted in your approach to what you do? Because God calls us to wholehearted service, wholehearted obedience. So we need to be obedient and servant-hearted um, servant reverently, wholeheartedly, but he also says conscientiously. Paul writes, so not by way, this is verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. He's telling us that the way that we work when we're seen should be the same as the way we work when we can't be seen. And then lastly, happily, verse 7. Paul tells us to be obedient, rendering service with a good will. What's he mean? He means get on with it if I can. That is tough. No hesitation. No doing it through gritted teeth. So for Christians here this evening, God calls you and I to be reverent, conscientious, happy, and wholehearted in our service, both in the church to Jesus and in our workplaces under Jesus. But as I reflected on this, I couldn't help but wrestle with two questions. What if your boss Wholehearted, whole being, devoted. 
devotion and service to God, to the Lord Jesus, to God first. And then that pours out into our personal day-by-day, week-by-week circumstances of school, family, work, or whatever it might be. The first question about the boss who's a muppet, well, I'm continuing to think about that. Um, some of you might have some advice for me. Um, but let me pray um, as we wrap up. Father, we thank you that uh, yeah, as we come to Easter, as we come to your word, we are confronted with the Lord Jesus, who lives self-sacrificially, who poured himself out for us, modeling to us true devotion, true obedience, and true leadership. So Lord, help us to be people who serve him first and foremost, in all that we do, with our whole being. And may that pour out in the, way, in the circumstances that we are in day by day. For those of us who are masters, to use Paul's language, Lord, help us to look to Jesus, to see how we ought to lead, and how we ought to work. So Father, we pray that you would help us to, to not forget this easily, but to think on and on about what this might mean in our personal service.